years. <laughs> two years. That's not too long ago. It probably seems like, has that been two years? Of course, you have to realize we were in it for two years. Verse by verse. Well, that's good. What we're going to do is, is attempt to do the book of First John in a month. <laughs> Compared to the two years, we won't get to all the depth that you had there, Tim, I'm sure. But uh, at the same time, we'll, uh, we'll go through this as uh, best we can, hitting uh, highlights. It, uh, but it is. It's, it's a great book. And uh, I'm not going to spend too much time uh, just having a, an introduction to it. We'll probably just uh, fly right into it. Uh, this book is, uh, like I say, it's uh, another one of the, the books of truth, but it definitely deals with truth. That's one of the tests that will be used uh, constantly uh, in First uh, in John. Uh, question you have to ask, well, why was it written? Why, why did John write this, uh, this book? Well, he has some purposes, obviously. And one of them would be assurance of salvation. You, know, you think of chapter 5 where he says, I write these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as you go through here, you'll have tests to see if you really are a Christian. If one was wondering... Uh, John is going to make it very clear. John, I think, is always a, kind of a black and white writer. You know, it's this. I mean, it, he makes it very simple. It's either or. Either this or, or it's that. And so he makes it uh, clear and, and yet very profound. Uh, so one thing is uh, that uh, they, they would absolutely know that uh, they are saved. Uh, there's a second purpose, and uh, that would be dealing with Error. We were talking about this is a book of truth. Of course, they're all books of truth, aren't they? But there was error coming into uh, the church, even at that time, believe it or not. And so he has to confront the error with truth. And he wants the people to know uh, how to respond to whenever uh, heresy comes into the church. How do you do this? I don't think there's anything more valuable than God's truth. I mean, there's quite a commodity there. I mean, it's uh, what else is, is more important? The most valuable reality in existence is um, is truth, God's truth. And so, the Word of God, John MacArthur says that the Word of God is what brings us salvation and eternal life, and it's the most necessary thing that exists. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God or the Word about Christ, and so salvation comes through the Word of God, His truth. How else could, how, could we know? So since that is a great item to know, that this is uh, really emphasizing that the greatest threat is whenever error comes in. That's not, uh, not truth. That anything that would differ from that. And so you think, okay, it's during the first century and this is the early church and everything is just going to go smooth and they're not going to have any kind of conflict as far as error coming in the church. You would think that, wouldn't you? You'd think it was purity and doctrine and it didn't take very long at all uh, for the enemy to come in and start bringing in things that were not of truth. And of course, the, the first uh, kind of teaching that happened was the Jewish legalism. People uh, came out of Judaism and as they came in, they kept... Uh, uh, a lot of things still in their mind. Of course, uh, Paul addresses that and some of the other writers in the New Testament. Um, circumcision being one thing that they had to deal with. Had to confront that. Matter of fact, they had uh, so many uh, uh, problems coming in there. They had uh, the first council of the church was held at Jerusalem because of this kind of error. And uh, so that was a necessary thing. 
Paul addresses it in the book of Galatians and all throughout different things that they had. By the time John writes this, he's an old man and he's really the uh, maybe the only one existing out of the, uh, the apostles. Uh, we know that he wrote Revelation somewhere just before the end of the first century and, and 1 John was written somewhere around that time. And he is, he's been at Ephesus and he's a, been a pastor there. And you can think back, well, who established the church at Ephesus? Paul did. So you had Paul as a pastor there. You had the Apostle John as a pastor. And I think uh, later Polycarp was a pastor there. That was an incredible church. You can imagine the, the great theology that they had. And, of course, the Scripture. Mm-hmm. Timothy. Timothy, yeah, thank you. I knew there was somebody else. Can't forget Timothy. Absolutely. <laughs> right, you know Timothy. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Paul, you know, of course, every church that, that he established and planted, were uh, every church was dear to him. But he wrote um, something to them in Acts 20, you can find it recorded, that he was concerned and he said that there would be um, error coming into the church, that there would be heresy, there would be false teachers that come in infecting the church. And sure enough, it uh, was by the time of uh, John doing that. And the heresy was kind of a... It would have been an early form of Gnosticism. I don't think they really had the name for it at the time, but that's what it really developed into, and they already had kind of that established in a sense. It was definitely the roots of Gnosticism, if we can say that. But Gnosticism is, uh, to, from the Greek word, it means to know. And, of course, there was a lot of pride in that. It, it meant to really know, to have a secret Religion, secret things that maybe nobody else knew. And you can look into the Eastern religions and you can see that that has always been a big thing. And you think of uh, what uh, some of the uh, uh, lodges, Masonic Lodge and such, they have secrets that nobody else is supposed to know unless you go through their system. And you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that was uh, happening there. It was also a philosophical system that they had. It was a, a dualism, I guess you could say, that... You, you have material and you have the spiritual realm and they're so separated that material is bad and spiritual is good. And if you're a spiritual person, okay, well, the material is bad, my flesh is bad, I can do anything that I want because it's already bad anyway. Uh, it's my spirit that's good, so I can live any, any way that I'd like to. And so that was the kind of thing that was coming into that. And John addresses that uh, here, right here in the first chapter. Uh, you can have unbridled indulgence of the flesh and just do whatever you want and still be okay because uh, your spirit man is all right. Uh, another thing that came around was uh, docetism. And uh, docetism means to seem. Um, they, would didn't, they would say that they believed in Christ and that Christ was here, but he really wasn't in a body. It just seemed like that. So you can see how difficult that would be with the resurrection or that he really walked the earth here. They said that that was to seem. So that was a, an illusion whenever he was in the body. You can see what kind of problems that would have. And that, that definitely deals problems with the doctrine of incarnation, for instance. A lot of doctrines uh, get assaulted by that. So he just seemed to be here. That's some of the things that John is having to deal with as we go through uh, this epistle. There's but, another. And, yeah. and on that same thing, also, we, we find that in a lot of the cults because they say, well, 
Christ was on the cross, he wasn't actually physically on the cross. He so really wasn't. That's why it's that for the cult. But anyway. That's good, because that's exactly uh, what, where it's at today. Right. Yeah, they will deny those kind of things. Uh, a third purpose is uh, the new commandment. And that would be love God, love your neighbor. And, and that's one of the tests, actually. You, you'll see that John will constantly be putting forth throughout the epistle. Um, but he really says, if you, if you don't love your neighbor then you're not a Christian. That's really what it comes down to. If you don't really love people and have a love for them, then uh, that's a good enough reason to question whether you're really a believer or not. And John would say, no, you're not. (laughs) You have to love your neighbor. So John uses three tests. And uh, it's going to start with with truth. Of course, uh, one aspect is the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Since we are Christians, we're in the body of Christ, he is what Christianity is, isn't he? It is Jesus Christ. So we, we have to get to the truth of who Jesus Christ is, and we're saying the truth of, about him being on the cross, for instance, about him being in a, in a body and, and that being for real. First um, uh, John will demand that um, if you're a Christian, you will live out a, um, a righteous life. Now, the, the, the thing is, it's not perfection that we're going to get at but it is right direction. We want the right direction, and, that, and that's what John is going to uh, bring forth. Um, if, if one said they were Christ, uh, a Christian, and they have these tests in front of them, and if they failed, it shows that they're not. They need to know. If you are a Christian and you know it, and you see those tests, you can say, yes, I believe in God's truth. I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I confess sin. And... Um, uh, you go with all the truths of the Scripture. Okay, you got that right. Then you have to look, okay, do you live it out? You know, that'd be a, a second test. Do you live what you believe? And then a third one is dealing with, with love. So uh, you have the doctrinal test. You have the moral test, doctrinal dealing with truth. The moral test dealing with uh, uh, a Christ-like righteousness that's that's been placed into us. And then the third one is a relational test, and that's love. So there's there's the three. Now I outline in that way because it's going to con- continually be brought up, and I'll probably in, in the outlines to come that I that I hand out, I'll, you'll see those three words. Uh, one chapter will be dealing with specifically those three, or uh, you'll see one of these tests each time that we do it. Though it's uh, it's always there, and so really important: truth, righteousness, love. Now I take that outline. It was actually written down by John Stott, and many other people have brought this forth too, but he actually borrowed it from somebody else, and I can't think of the gentleman's name now, but Stott is is known for that, and I I was reading James Montgomery Boyce, his commentary on this, and uh, he gave credit to Stott, but then he mentioned another guy, and then I've read uh, many other commentaries, and a lot of them came up with the same kind of thing, it's just just repetitious, whether you break it down that or not, it's it's still there, You'll, you'll see it. Okay, let's get into the uh, verses. I said I was going to try to get there very quickly. <laughs> okay, <laughs> here we are. Uh, we're going to we're going to read the text, and we really have uh, a short chapter here tonight. Ten verses in the first chapter, and then we're going to take two verses into chapter two because uh, it's kind of connected with it. 
And uh, what we're going to do is look at the first four verses. We'll read that and then we'll kind of uh, do a little bit of expository on this in a, in a quick way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. There may be another purpose right there in verse 4, that your joy may be full. He's writing that we would have joy. So, as we read this, hopefully we can have, uh, we can have joy. Uh, if, we ha- if we have fellowship, then you have joy. For example, joy with, uh, fellowship with Christ, and fellowship with the other believers, and the joy comes out of that. Anyway, we get right into the essence of uh, what Christianity is. John hits it right on the head, and it's like he's defending the faith right off the bat. Uh, that which was from the beginning. Now he says, was from the beginning. If you remember, in the, in the Gospel of John, which I thought that we were going to do, and we thought we were going to get 21 chapters of John. <laughs> Just kidding. So there, right? <laughs> okay. Way back, thank you for doing a, a small book that we can get this in. That works out good. Um, John 1 1. In the beginning. Was the word was with God? The word was God in the beginning, and you'll say, "Okay, this must be the same thing that he's writing about in uh, the Gospel of John." The beginning, he's talking about a creation here, right? Well, if we look at the context, I think what we're uh, looking at here is at the time the apostles uh, learned who Jesus was, and they started following that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon. Uh, he's talking about the time that they first uh, knew him. Uh, and, and he's saying, hey, there's nothing new here. You know, the gospel is always the same. It, it never changes. Um, and and it, it never has changed. It never will change. And the most important thing to say here is that Christianity is Jesus Christ. So when we see that he speaks about the beginning, he's saying, okay, when it first started for us, in, in at, at least at this time. Um, and then he uses the word of life at the end of the first verse, and then we'll, we'll come back with um, some of the phrases that are before that, but the word of life, this is what? Life. Jesus Christ. That's what it is that we believe in. That's the very focus. This is why we do what we do. It's all about Him. All about Christ. Christianity is Jesus Christ. And it's not a system. Uh, later on, we'll see that in uh, uh, John, life is used of Jesus. And we, we like to think of the word of life here. Uh, most commentators that I read will say that the word word there, usually you think of the, well, you think of the logos that's in John 1, and you think that um, very manifestation of who God is and, and showing uh, who He is. In this sense, it's, probably dealing with the gospel 
uh, life, is, at any rate, is dealing with Christ. Life is Christ. Eternal life is Christ. The word here is what is spoken or proclaimed through Christ. It's uh, like the gospel. The gospel is centered in Christ. You cannot separate Christ from the gospel anyway. Um, the whole good news message. So, Jesus is the essential core, the very essence here of uh, this proclamation, this gospel that's being put forth. Uh, he's the very center of that. The Gnostics had a system, and the Christians had life. There's the, you, know, you think of that, it's the life of Christ, the life of Jesus. Christianity has life, doesn't it? Gnosticism, all it had was uh, just a system that was false and nothing there. And so but he, that's what he's going to do. He's got, he's got to show that this, uh, this Christ here is one who's real. So what he'll do is use evidence. Now, if you're in a courtroom and you know something to be true, you will be a witness and you will testify to what you saw, what you heard, and maybe even felt. And you'll just tell what it is. And that's what John is going to do. He's going to have objective evidence because he actually, and, and it's not just him, you'll notice he uses, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, our hands have handled. When you have a, a witness in court, you must have at least two to three witnesses for it to be valid. And so he's saying, it's not just me, I just didn't have an experience but this has been proven. There are other people who would testify to this too. We heard. We heard him. We actually heard him speak. There were words that came out of his mouth. And, and we heard that. That's an objective evidence in that sense. Uh, John experienced this. And so he actually listened to Jesus. Now think about that. He heard his parables. He heard all of his teachings. He heard him preach. Can you imagine that? How incredible that must have been to hear the living Jesus. And He still is today. We read the Word, but we don't hear His voice. They heard it. And this is what John is saying. The stories that he did, the sermons, what a privilege that he had. And so that's what he's saying, to, to listen to him. The next word he brings forth as evidence, which we have seen with our eyes. Horao, which means to actually see physically it's real and it's not some kind of vision when, so when he puts this forth I saw it just as I'm looking and seeing you here I saw him I mean he was physically there remember that they were saying it seems that he was there oh he really was next one is which we have looked upon now he said saw with our eyes and then he said looked upon it seems like he's repeating it well, he is, but he goes a little bit further on this because it's like looking very closely at or going deeply into the matter. He, he saw not only spiritually, but it almost gets into the sense he understood thoroughly in the sense of who he was as he saw him. He looked deeply. Uh, John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. We saw it. We understood. We totally perceived what His glory was about. We saw that. This is objective evidence, isn't it? Heard, saw. What's the next one? And our hands have handled. 
or touched. He, he wasn't some kind of, um, what, what is that, um, a phantom? You know, that's really not in a real body. So we, we touched him. And you have to think of the, the Thomas incident, for instance. You remember that one, right? You know, put your hands on my side. Touch me, feel me. I'm really here. <laughs> and uh, when Thomas did that, I saw that it was real. What's John concluding then? Well, the word of life was here. We have evidence. We saw him. We bear witness to this eternal life, to this word of life, this gospel truth, this gospel, this, this life, this Christ that's here. Now, there's a subjective evidence, and it's found in verse 2. The objective truth is found in verse 1. Verse 2, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The word manifested is phanerao, and it means to make visible what is hidden. It was hidden, but now... It's made this In this sense, God was like invisible. He was hidden. And now He has been seen. Christ became visible. Christ, when He came in the flesh, now showed who God was. In these last days, the Father has revealed His Son. And His Son being in the flesh. Now you can... They actually saw God. It was, he was manifested. And so that means to perceive with understanding. He really was with him. They saw his glory. They believed uh, he was God in the flesh. And when Peter said that great confession, here's where we get this manifestation in one sense. Not, it's not just physically here, but it takes it into the spiritual sense. And we can uh, identify this. Peter said the great confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God himself has said us. The Father in heaven, the Father who is in heaven has done that. Exactly. Bingo. He got it. That happened to us. One could look at Jesus all day long. Physically, they could have been right there. But what happened inwardly to them is the work of God in them that they recognized that this is God Himself. That rang true with all the saved apostles and all the people who uh, were saved during Jesus' ministry. Do you think that happened right as it was happening? I mean, did the disciples, apostles, did they know right? It seemed like they had little small minds and they couldn't take it all in right then. But he tried this like 60 years later and he's looking back and he realized it even way more now than he did when he was right with Jesus, maybe. Do you think that? Oh, that's a good thought, isn't it? You know, even though, you know, we might have become Christians many, many years ago. And it's just like, well, in First John, what we're going to see that there are uh, little children, then there are the young men, and then there are the fathers. 
There's, there's stages of growth. We just know that He's the Father. We, we know we've been saved. But we don't know much else. And as time goes on, we see Him and perceive Him much more than we ever did before. And I think John, as he wrote and is inspired by the Holy Spirit and thought about it, even became more real. Yeah, they were... Um, they just couldn't believe that He had to die. They didn't know about you know the resurrection and all of those things. He said it many times, but they just didn't get it. It it's not natural. But even at their salvation, you know, we don't know exactly, you know, when. But but he calls them uh, to be apostles and uh, you know to be ministers of him outside of Judas. I think as he had called them, they were becoming believers. Matthew was called, and and he left the tax table and immediately went after him. And you know, you go on and on and look at those. And but they, they didn't know a whole lot. But there definitely is growth in that. Isn't that great? If you, pers- if you pursue God and His Word, you begin to know Him even more and more. And when, whenever you guys meet Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, get together, have your fellowship, and you get around the Word of God, and you get just a little bit more of God's glory. You understand a little bit more of who He is. Line upon line, precept upon precept. We keep building, don't we? That's a beautiful thing. That's an inward thing that the outside world cannot understand. And that's why we say this manifestation is in the sense that there was a a change in their lives. John is certain about the word of life. He knew he physically was there, but there was more than that. He saw that there was uh, a work that God had had done to him, and that's a valid experience. We could go to the lost world and tell them, hey, here's what God has done for me. And that's a good thing to do. You know, God changed me, especially to somebody who knows you. you know. And, and we're giving them subjective evidence. But sometimes they can see that there's been a change in you, but they can't see the heart. And, and you know that the Holy Spirit, uh, says in Romans 8, is telling us that we have been changed. We are new people. That's subjective. But it's, it's truth, isn't it? We can't go back to the, that object of truth the way that they had it. We cannot be along with other people and actually touch Him or see Him or hear Him. But He's just as real coming out of this Word of God that He was to them, but we, it's not in that objective, visual, hearing, audio that they had. And, you know, we have some advantages looking back and thinking of the Word of God, but that they had the advantage of there was the real sense that He was there in a, in a body. So we can't repeat that objective truth, but we can the subjective, can't we? We know that uh, He has manifested Himself to us in, in the spiritual way. Uh, okay, uh, let's move to verse 3. And He says some of the same words again, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Now, we're going to proclaim this. John was certain about the person of Christ. Do you think he had any doubts whatsoever? No. I mean, he had been there. There's no way that anybody's going to convince him that that was really not a real thing here. You know, what he's saying also is, hey, I have a responsibility now to proclaim this. I, I experienced this. I'm not only convinced, my life has changed, but I, I come here to proclaim it. The life was manifested, manifested to us. That which we've seen and heard, we declare to you. We declare, we proclaim. I bear witness 
Does uh, any of your versions have that? I bear witness. I testify. We declare to you or we testify. Do we have any of those? Declare to you. Declare. Okay. I think what we're getting at is this bear witness or testify, word being martyrain, uh, dealing with, we get our English word martyr. If you go out and tell the truth, you might be a martyr. So in the early days, that's how that transliterated. Of course, we have it in the English. But uh, this word actually comes from a court of law. And that makes sense. Uh, testify and uh, proclaim here. It speaks of telling what you saw and what you heard and what you felt. Just simply that. Hey, I was standing on the corner. I saw this guy take out a gun and he pointed it out his uh, window of the car and he shot the man across the street. I heard this. I saw this. And so he just tells the truth. And that, you know, we have responsibility, don't we? When we see something that is significant and people ask us to, to bring that forth. So that's what a witness really does. They just tell, here, here's what happened. First hand. He is a first hand witness. I can't think of anybody better, especially at that time. All the other apostles have probably all been martyred by that time. They're dead and gone and John is the last one. And he could be probably in his 80s. You know, he's an old man. But he's saying, I'm testifying to this. I, I experienced this. Let's look in John 15, verse 27. Here's the book that uh, John wrote. As he had years to think about this, and put it together. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. From that time whenever I first called you into uh, being apostles. There's that beginning again, isn't it? John uses that beginning, that time, along with what the, the first John, that you testify, that you bear witness. You've been with Me. So you testify. So he told him right there uh, in the book of John. Now this is John 15. This is the night before that he's crucified. And he's saying, you're going to bear witness. You're going to give the truth. You're going to testify because you've been with me. You're going to tell about it. And that's what he's doing right here in 1 John, isn't it? That's one of the times that he's doing that. So, but we also see, if you want, also like in Matthew chapter 16, we do see Peter's confession where he knew that he was the Son of God. And on that rock, that confession, that God would build the church. So in a sense, you do see that they did know. But then shortly after that, he says, get behind me, Satan, because going to the cross, so there was this knowledge, but then there was also this not full knowledge, in a sense, too, of all that Christ had to accomplish in order for that to be done. So it's always interesting on the technical part on what they didn't know, what they didn't know, you know what I'm saying? The balance was the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Did that say, though, that a lot of these things uh, that apostles wouldn't realize until after he was resurrected? Yes. Yeah. And then it would be opened up to them. Right. They would remember. That had to be the Spirit of God and the right timing that, that would do that and just open all of a sudden they had perfect yes. understanding. Yes. After the resurrection, that yes. was <laughs> And then when the Holy Spirit came to them after they had been in the upper room, uh, the things that they said and the things that they did, especially like you can think of, let's, let's pick apart Peter, you know, for instance. 
you know, he had, he had said some bold things and then he was a, was a coward and, you know, there Satan's going to sift him like wheat and all that. But then, as soon as the Holy Spirit comes, then they start saying things that they had never said before with boldness. They start doing things that they had not done. Jesus is not with them, but the Holy Spirit is. He's another one of... Uh, uh, that's you know, He's the helper. He's the comfort. He's the power. He makes the new hands in Christ. That's right. Exactly. All the things that passed away, all the things that come new. That's, that's why I think probably that's when they became believers, because technically, until the Holy Spirit dwells you, you're, you're, not, you're not really a, a believer. They, they, uh, the power, just, it just... Instantly, wasn't it? Power of God. Amazing thing. And, uh, you know, you think, these guys really existed. Can you, you know, when we get to heaven, of course, we want to see Christ and, and we want to see, um, you know, but you think of the apostles and wouldn't you just love to sit down? Well, we will. We'll be able to, to do that with all the other characters there here in biblical scripture and, and then down through history. Just think of all those people that God used and they were really just people like us that God empowered to do amazing things. It just amazing. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same truth uh, that they had. Well, the apostles get the privilege of writing this down. So they testify not only by the mouth as the places they go to, but they write it down in writing and that later became to be known as the New Testament. And there's John writing one of them right here as, as we study that. All the books of the New Testament written by an apostle or uh, somebody that was associated with them to give the apostolic eyewitness account. So uh, they had to qualify. Either they were an apostle in the New Testament or somebody that was underneath them. You think of Paul. Paul became an apostle. Um, and then we know that Luke who had been around Paul and Luke got together with probably some of the other apostles as he combined information together to historically write uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts and, of course, uh, Jude, uh, James, James, a leader in Jerusalem. Uh, but they knew the apostles, didn't they? They were connected with them, so they would be able to validify that this was all truth. Uh, Peter witnessed... Uh, for instance, the Mount of Transfiguration. And when you're reading uh, Peter and he talks about, here's something I can't forget. Whenever Jesus like peeled back his flesh and showed a little bit of his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, <laughs> Peter was ready to what? Build tabernacles and whatever. You know, <laughs> Let's just hang out here forever. What a thing that he wanted there. But uh, Jesus said, no, no, it's... This is just something here that I wanted to show a little bit of my glory. But, uh, you've got to go down from the mountain here. You know, we've, we've got some work to do. <laughs> but anyway, we take those writings and we here this day realize that we've entered into the relationship that they had with Christ. We have that same relationship that the apostles experienced. We have the same relationship. We proclaim the same Christ that they proclaimed. They, we proclaim the same truth as the apostles did as they went out into the world. Isn't that amazing? And we know without a doubt that this is the truth. We have no reservations at all. So we're eyewitnesses in that sense too. But uh, 
John was there, what validity he had. So what's the purpose of all this? Well, you keep on reading in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship. We're declaring this so that you would have fellowship with us. Koinonia, you're familiar with that word. Um, something in common, it, uh, dealing with having a relationship to partner with. We proclaim this so that you'd have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father. You can't have fellowship with people unless you have fellowship with God. It starts there. The what? The vertical. And then you can have the horizontal relationship. And so the fellowship starts with Christ. The Word has to be proclaimed. When the Word is proclaimed, then one enters that relationship. That, that uh, great privilege of having fellowship. Relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And course God we're, we're all in partnership that's a that's a great thing to think about we're all partners we have different ministries different gifts that we do but yet we're all on the same page sometimes we may not act like it or think like that but that's really what we're about we're, we're there to lift up the name of Christ to bring glory to him and and then it says in verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. When you have a true fellowship with Christ, then He gives you fellowship with His people. And out of that, don't you have joy? A church is great. Boy, I mean, when you, when you leave church, it's, it's been uplifting. Um, I'm sure you get uplifting messages here by the Word of God. Sometimes it can be very convicting, right? This, this guy convict you, right? I mean, when he preaches the Word, does it get a little convicting sometimes? <laughs> But you still get what it is. You don't hang your head. You have joy in the sense, oh, God's Word is here to change us, isn't it? We're working for that together and that we'd be a light to the world as we do change. So, it's great joy. I'll tell you what, I love that Word. Even in the midst of trials, tests that we have. You guys had a lot of prayer requests, people having cancer, people you guys know are so dear and so close to you. And yet at the same time, you have the peace and the joy that God gives you. Not a giggly joy, but it's a joy in the sense that you know um, that God has us under control. And isn't that great? And that's some of the things that John's talking about. Okay, moving on. We move to number two. What God is. This is the message which we have heard, keeps using that word heard, from Him and declare to you what? That God is light. And in Him, there's no darkness at all. All right. The Westminster Confession has as a fourth question, what is God? How would you define God? Well, in the Westminster Confession, it says this. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's good. Those are great words. This is about God. We still need to know Him, though. And so, whenever we see here in this fifth verse... John is saying that God is light. God is light. He doesn't say that He's kind of like light. 
He says, God is light. So what uh, James Montgomery Boyce says is that even though the Westminster Confession is very good at that, and it's good, that's, that's a good way to uh, put that out, but he says there's a better way to define God, and it's found in this fifth verse. God is light. John has a message to deliver, and this message is angelia, this, this message. It's a connecting link between verse 4 and um, on through the, the rest of this, this area here. So verse 4 and 5 kind of go together. It connects it. After stating that we have fellowship and, and we have joy here, he now states, and he's going to state as we go a little further, the conditions under which the fellowship with God is possible. And this is where the tests are going to start. I've already seen kind of a test. You know, do you see the, the truth test you know, of Christ? Uh, but in 1 John, we see that God is light, positive. The negative is there's no darkness in Him. He, he starts with that. Um, James Montgomery Boyce says this, In this, we have the broadest and most comprehensive definition of God that can probably be devised in human language. The best way that we can say what God is is found here, as Boyce says. You might differ with that, but the thing is, this is an important statement. John has just laid down the evidence and he says, God is light. That's the message that I'm proclaiming. I'm telling you who He is. He is light. Now, our human language is limited. How do you define God? How do you... You know, in our human language, we come short of that. I mean, such a glorious God. It's amazing. He gives us human languages so that we can talk and then we can talk to Him and He can talk to us. And I think Calvin called it baby talk. Baby talk. He's been able to put it in a way that we can communicate. He's God. How can we ever get on His level? But He gets on our level. We communicate. So anyway, here's the positive. God is light. And what we're going to do is just look at a few Old Testament passages. And we're going to see this all throughout the Old Testament. You see it quite frequently. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my... Aha! Well, that's a good one too. There's a lot of analogies. But I can't do that one on this because we don't have enough time. <laughs> that's right. That's the Psalm 23. <laughs> yeah, I got in trouble there. I better not leave it, leave it hanging there. Because in Psalm, you get a lot of uh, different analogies of who God is. Here, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. But what's he start off with? The Lord is my light here. He gives us so many different ways of saying, okay, here's, here's the way I am here. Here's the way I am here. Oh, you, you're considered to be sheep. If he's a shepherd, we are the sheep. <laughs> you know, if he is the master, we are the bond slave, right? If he's the potter, we're the clay. Different ways of looking at who we are and who God is. Uh, and that's, that's baby talk too. Here's, here's the picture. Here's the illustration. Here's how you can understand me. God reveals himself. Through the Word. Okay, Psalm 27, that's what we did. How about chapter 36, verse 9? For with you is the fountain of life in your light. We see light 
When you think about light, you have to think about truth. John uses light and life and truth over and over and over again in his writings. The Gospel of John. You know, you can't you can't miss it. He constantly brings that forth. That's an important term for him. And at this time that he writes this, it's very important because remember, uh, people are going after these mysteries and certain truths and they really want to know. Well, he's saying God is light. Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, it is, too, is, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, the servant, the suffering servant. He's the light to the Gentiles. He came to a people of darkness and He was the light. So there's a prophecy there. Now we go to John and you can't miss it right off the bat in chapter 1. Our Apostle John brings forth this Great imagery, but which is really truth. God is light. In John 1, verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for witness, to bear witness of the light that all through Him might believe He was not that light, John the Baptist was not, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Jesus, in through the book of John, is described as seven or eight I Am's. One of them is, I am the light of the world. How often do you see light? Oh, it's a great contrast, light and darkness and Christ being that, that light. Jesus is the light. We also see in the Sermon on the Mount that who else is light? We are the light and the salt, right? Um, we are reflectors. He's the true light, but as we bear witness, um, we bring forth uh, His light. Okay, so if God is light, if you have A which says this is true, and you come along with something else that's contradictory, it's false. A is true, B is false. God is light, positive. In Him is no darkness at all. So there's another statement. That's a true statement, but He's just saying He's not dark. He is light. So He brings those those two out. And, uh, you know, in the... Eastern religions, you, know, you think of the yin and the yang, and they're all combined together. Good and evil, they're all together. There's no difference. Here, God is light. He is not darkness. And, and all, those, all those Eastern religions pretty well mixed together. Uh, they meet in the one. You know, the oneness of it all. And uh, so really there's... Bad is really not bad, and good is not really good. And... <laughs> Crazy stuff out there. But that's what the world is, is offering. It's been offering it. If you go back and look at the philosophies and all the things that were coming out at that time of, of uh, 
First John, this epistle, that's one of the things that he had to battle. Uh, I think what John is putting forth, he's light, he is holy. And if we're, had a, if we're to have fellowship with God, we must recognize that he is light. And we are to be light too. But he's still emphasizing Christ. Okay, number three, verses 6 through 10. Now he's shown that God is light. He's described him a little bit. We just a little, little, little bit of that. From 6 through 10, he's going to show what men are. God is light. Men are sinners. So, here we go. If we say, notice that, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Truth is not in us. But on the other side, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. You see the progression here? And you have the if we sayers and you have the if we doers. The ones who are true do what they say. The other ones say something, but it's not in their lives. Matter of fact, they might even be deceived and it gets to the point where they lie. This is where we start what I could say is, is a, a first test here. It's dealing with sin. I can't think of a better place that John um, could, have, could have started here. Because this is where we recognize what the cross did. It forgave us our sins, right? And that's a great place to start. True Christians confess their sins. The unregenerated do not confess their sins. A true mark of a Christian is that they confess. By the way, the word for confess is homo legeo. Homo means um, same. Logeo means to speak. To speak the same thing. It means to agree with God that you have sinned. Let's say you've taken a certain sin, or you, you know you're sin. You're agreeing with Him. You're saying the same thing about sin that God says about it. When we're doing that, we're confessing. People today don't like to talk about sin. They'll use substitute words for it, a mistake, mistakes. Uh, they will use the word "sick," as in, uh, let's say, sick mentally. Uh, I'm a victim of addiction. Comes down to, hey, sin is sin. If people would call it for what it is. These guys say, okay, we're believers, we have fellowship. We lie and don't practice the truth. We don't do those things if we don't match up with it. So it's a false claim of righteousness. They say one thing, but their actions deny the reality uh, that it has happened. Um, they're walking in the dark, aren't they? They're walking in the dark. If you're walking in the dark, you're not in the light. If one is not in the light, and he's talking about, all the way through John is going to be talking about a continual practice. If you practice these things, if you practice these sins, then you're not real. Now, does that mean that a believer cannot sin? No, because John's going to come up and qualify that. He said, well, absolutely, Christians still sin. If you say you don't, then you're lying, right? Lying to yourself, lying to God. 
But these people were characterizing themselves by their unrighteous acts. You know what they would say? Hey, you know what? I'm a spiritual person. My actions uh, physically are not matching up with it, you say, but, but that's because it doesn't matter. The physical flesh, some of this kind of thought that it was that was coming in. But one who's walking in the light will see the blood of Jesus, as it says in verse 9. Uh, that or uh, what is it? Uh, verse 7, I'm sorry. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. From the very point of salvation all the way on through our walk here on this earth, He continually cleanses. The, the sin has been taken care of, but there's a cleansing agent that goes on. Forgiveness has already been provided. Praise God. It's been provided. It's there. Believers will find forgiveness provided for by the sacrifice of Christ. That's where they find it. This encourages holiness because of what is done. So they, these people have a false claim of, of righteousness. The second one is found in 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Here's a group of people said, we don't sin. We've arrived. We don't sin. I've actually heard people in the Christian body today say that they have gotten to the point that they don't sin anymore. There's, you've probably heard of the perfection, that kind of thing. Uh, it's found in the Wesleyan tradition sometimes. Do they have a glow about <laughs> I kept looking for it. I just, I, I looked for a halo or something. <laughs> I know, it's like, wow, boy, I, I'm not there. How'd you get there? Let me, um, yeah, my, my wife, Tina, when she uh, when first came to faith, she was actually somebody in Baptist church, but came from another denomination and kind of bringing teaching in. That once you're saved, even when you're sinning, it's, it's not really a sin. That is that from the scripture. Because that, you're at that point. Yeah, that you, it's just not, you're not capable ever to sin again. Even though, you know, so if you do the sin, it's not really the sin. It just looks like it's sin. I don't know how it works. It just seems to, like that word we were using. Yeah, it, it seems like yeah, it's it. There's this kind of confusion in there. In, in there. It's in a denomination, I'm not sure which one you think were. You were a bit um, used to hearing it, but, yeah. Well, I know a Nazarene uh, will take on that, uh, that thought. Perfect sanctification. Perfect sanctification. Complete sanctification. Complete right. complete sanctification. Yeah. That's that's a problem with this section here. I, I still haven't really understood how they get around that, but yeah. Puritans dealt with that all the time. The Puritans dealt with that. We think patient. Oh yeah. Yeah. The second claim, uh, quite an error here. They 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 just cease to sin, and John says that they were deceived. Uh, I think all that does is leave excuses for sin to happen. Say, hey, I don't sin. Instead of denying sin, right? I mean, uh, we as Christians need to admit it. We need to confess it. It, It's just, it's there. And God is faithful in that He promised to forgive sin. And He is just because He is righteous and that He is the one that can do that. We know that He will always do that. What a promise. He is just because He has punished our sin at the cross. Of course, that gets in the propitiation 
thought. But anyway, verse 10, you have a group of people who, uh, this is the third group, some claimed their own righteousness, and others claimed that they had no sin, others said they never sinned. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. This is a display of the arrogance of man to say that they have never sinned. Uh, I think this is the most serious claim. Uh, The other one, before this one, was dealing with saying, you're deceiving yourselves. This time, John writes, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. Well, God is not a liar. Let every man be a liar and God be truth, right? We know that God is truth. Um, boy, that's, that's making quite a claim. Actually, I think John is calling them liars. If, if you go and say that you never sinned, you've just lied. <laughs> because we know that, that that can't be. Anyway, Romans 3.23 says, says what? All have sinned. All show the glory of God. So John has contrasted the nature of God. Is that verse 5? And then 6 through 10... He's shown the nature of man. And he has sin there. God is light. We were in darkness as Christians. Now we've been delivered from that. And he's shown there is a difference for those now who walk in the light with Christ and the ones who don't. Light, darkness. John, simple. (laughs) Okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to finish this off. Chapter 2. My little children. And what he's going to do now, he's talking to Christians now. He was addressing the ones who were making some kind of profession, but their actions were not proving it. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to be sinning. And if anyone sins, which we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Ooh, okay. That's, that's a load right there. That's an evening by itself. <laughs> but what, what's, what's he saying here? He has an address to Christians who have a problem of we still sin. We're in the flesh. We're Christians. We've been changed. But it's not now if we say, you know, because John's been addressing that, but it's the ones who are walking. It's not um, if we walk or if we confess, we are doing that if we're Christians. We do those. Um, There's a call to holiness here as Christians. Okay, because of this, because of what he's done, we want to live a holy life. So we have the promises of God right there. And he doesn't want us to sin. He, you know, that we might not sin. That's what he says there. To keep free from sin. So that's an assurance. There's an assurance that our, uh, we, we've been forgiven, but there's an assurance that because we've been forgiven, it will lead us to holiness. And, and this knowledge of God's forgiveness, you, you can't help but praise God to think, I am forgiven. My sins have been cast as far as the east from the west. They're gone. It's, it's, it's out of here. We're won by that. And we don't want to fail. And you get the work of Christ here. Okay. You get the advocate. You get the righteous. 
being Jesus Christ, you get propitiation, atoning sacrifice. We approach God not because of anything we have to offer, but why? The work of Christ. And we see that um, He uh, is the one we approach. The advocate is a legal term there. It's parakleton, paraclete. You guys know what that is, right? The Holy Spirit was uh, termed that way. Um, it's one who um, we, can, we can approach Him. That being called alongside of. Paraclete. Parakletos. To call alongside. To be alongside. This is what the advocate is. He still bears uh, for us. Uh, the merit is on the part of the advocate, isn't it? It's never our merit. It's the advocate. Number two, the righteous. The righteous character of Christ. And that's what governs this advocate that we have. He, he presents the case faithfully, doesn't he? He presents the case perfectly as he uses these courtroom terms, that courtroom term there, paracleton and righteous. And the last one is propitiation. He himself is the propitiation. Not expiation. Some versions might have had that. But it's propitiation and that's dealing with the atonement. It's dealing with the heart of the gospel. It's dealing with the cross. This is so important. It means the Father was satisfied with the act that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Whenever He died, the work had been done. The Father is, if I can use this word loosely, appeased. That might sound very bothersome, but that He was pleased with what His Son had done. The just demands were paid for. And that placates the very wrath that God has against sin whenever the, the Son had done that. He atoned for particular people. And just as we close out here, I'll leave it going here. He said, not only ours, but also for the whole world. Just to make it real quick, um, this can say, well, this means He died for everybody. And the whole thing is, if He died for everybody, then everybody should get in. This would be a universalism scripture. Not only did He die for us, but He died for everybody in the whole world. Man, woman, and child ever been born. Does world mean that? Uh, well, it can't. Otherwise, there are many other passages where it shows that not all people are going to heaven. In fact, it even says, few there be to find it, right? There are going to be people in hell. If He paid for their sins, like Hitler, why would Hitler be in hell if his sins are being paid for? What do you have? You have double, double jeopardy then. So what is the world will uh, often, as it, as it says, many tribes, nations, tongues, all over the world. Not only us Jewish Christians, the ones who become Christians in our area where we're at, but it's also going to go out into other lands, to other people, to other tribes. And so uh, he died for other Gentiles that he has chosen. He died for them. And that's who make up the, the church. So Jesus fulfilled the very pattern of the Old Testament sacrifices and the propitiation, but He did it in such a way that now the, uh, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, are saved also. Anyway, that would be one interpretation. If Jesus had done so much for us, and not only for us, but also for people sacrificed, people that are all over the world, and if this leads us to praise Him, should it not lead to holiness? And I think that's what, as uh, John kind of sums it up there. Well, did you guys like to... Uh
praise God by going to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for this time this evening that uh, we can look into Your Word. What a great epistle that John gave us. And it is about Christ. The message is always Jesus Christ. And that we would be pointed to Him. And that we would point uh, Him to others out in the lost world. All the rest of the world out there that uh, people who need to see that the sacrifice has been done and that their sins can be forgiven, that they have offended you as far as the law is concerned, but your payment is made. We have that offer of the great news. We can testify along with this great apostle John who actually saw your son, actually lived with him, heard him, felt him, walked with him for over three years, and then felt the what the Holy Spirit had done in changing his life, we have the same experience in the sense that we have been changed through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is our message. In your Son's name, Lord, we pray. Amen.